All right, with that, we're going to jump into the message today. Uh, I asked a question on Facebook several weeks ago. What is the best or what is the worst Christmas present you ever received? Um, I I love Christmas, and a lot of you, I I like getting stuff, just to be honest with you. Charity has uh, uh, procured my Christmas present for this year, and I'm excited about it. Uh, I like giving gifts uh, as well. I'm not very good at it, but I I just like the exchange of gifts. And so I was curious, what would you say the best or the worst Christmas? Christmas present you had uh, ever received. One of my friends responded, she has a daughter, and she says this, the worst gift was ever, ever given was actually to my daughter. She had broken both her arms during Christmas time. She was 11 or 12 years old, and every Christmas Eve, the kids each got to pick one present to open, and they were always so excited. She picked the one box and opened it, and it was a pair of new gloves. <laughs> Meanwhile, both her arms are in a cast. She cried, and we couldn't help but laugh at her, right? Another lady said her best Christmas present was when she was five, and her dad got her a pony, put it in the living room, and put a bow on the pony by the tree. How cool is that? Someone else says the best gift, uh, one of the best gifts they ever got was a handheld Game Boy that required batteries, and they opened up on Christmas Eve, but it also became the worst present because they didn't have any batteries in the house, and they had to wait two whole days to go to get batteries from Walmart. Have you ever hated that as a kid, right? I mean, you open up the Christmas present, you can't even play with it because it doesn't work. One submission, this was one of my favorites, said, it wasn't Christmas time, but one time I was gifted an air guitar as a gift. <laughs> That's sad. And then the personal favorite. I know this person very well. This is a true story. Said the worst present I ever got was when my husband gave me a bathroom scale. (laughs) Now, gentlemen, if you're looking for a last minute gift for your wife, a bathroom weight scale is not the route you want to go. And the crazy thing is this guy is still alive. Okay. If there's one thing that Christmas season teaches us, it's the power of the, con- the, the consumer mindset in our world today. It seems like every year the Christmas season starts earlier and earlier. This year, I kid you not, I walked into Lowe's the first week of September. We haven't even got uh, to uh, Labor Day yet, and there was Christmas pres- or Christmas trees already on display to buy the first week of September. I looked up the statistics. The total holiday spending for the last year that we have recorded, 2018, was roughly $700 billion. That's enough money to buy 1,400,000,055-inch TVs. That's insane to me. Why do we love buying things so much for during the Christmas season? Well, we have to understand that there's nothing wrong with buying and giving of Christmas presents. That's all fun. But what I do think is it shows is that the condition of our hearts are never satisfied with the things that we have in life. We're never satisfied. We always have a desire to have more and more and more. And so the, the antidote that we have to our dissatisfaction is to consume more things, to get more things, and to achieve more things. It's the foundation of the consumer's mindset. And so today, we're in the middle of our series entitled The Broken Family Tree. And in this series, we are looking at the family tree of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at different ancestors in his lineage who were broken people 
who desperately needed the Christmas experience. They needed an Emmanuel. They needed God with them. They needed Christ in their lives. And I want to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse number 6, and we're going to see another person in the family tree of Christ. And it says this, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, we saw last week that Jesus had these insane members in his family, and today we're going to look at one of the most unique and interesting people in all the scriptures, and definitely one of the most interesting people in the line of Jesus Christ, and that is King Solomon. If there was ever someone who tried to find his happiness in the consumer mindset, it was Solomon. If you are unfamiliar with his story, Solomon is the son of King David through Bathsheba. Now, David and Bathsheba... Bathsheba had actually had an affair. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of David's commanders. He was one of David's mighty men. And one day he sees, David looks down from his palace and sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. His lust leads him into a place where they commit adultery with one another and they end up killing Uriah, her husband, to try to cover up the affair. And God is displeased. In fact, she had conceived in this affair and that child had passed away. However, even though this union started in sin, God knows how to redeem all things. God knows how to fix the things that we break, and that should bring us a lot of comfort. And even though David broke this situation, God was fixing it, and he was working, and he blessed this union with Solomon, who was to become the next king of Israel. Now, Solomon, after he becomes king, God comes to him and asks him, what would you have me to give to you? He said, I'll give you anything that you want. Ask me what you want, and I will give it to you. Now, if God asked you that question, what would you ask God for? I personally think I would ask not to pay taxes anymore. I mean, that would be awesome, right? I mean, if you could have anything in the whole world, not paying taxes might be what I would ask for. But Solomon doesn't answer selfishly. He answers very humbly. And he says, I want the wisdom to be able to lead your people well. And God honored that request and gave Solomon wisdom that was beyond anyone who had ever lived. If you have ever read the book of Proverbs, you'll see how wise Solomon was. However, as time goes on, Solomon starts to drift from honoring God, and he becomes a man whose sole purpose went from loving God and leading God's people to living a sensual lifestyle that ultimately sabotaged the purpose that God had for his life. Out of his life comes one of the most unique books in Scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes from cover to cover, what you will see is you get a picture of a man who had lived life to his fullest ability. He had enjoyed every sensual opportunity that the world has to offer. He had the money. He had the fame. He had the power. He had the women. He, he did everything that he possibly could, and yet it left him completely and utterly to the point at the end of his life that he said that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Mourning is better than feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. What you see from his life is that he engaged in everything that he thought would bring him pleasure, and yet it left him at a place that was completely and utterly broken. A place where he said, it was better the day that I die than the day that I was born. It could be said that 
In fact, there's one point at, in, the, in the book where he says the most blessed among the human race are stillborn babies. Wow. How bitter and angry could this man be? In the book of Ecclesiastes, it could be said that it's one of the most morbid and depressing books in Scripture. In fact, as I was studying for this, one scholar said there's really terrible advice given in this book. There's things that are contrary to how we should live because Solomon's just spurting out anger and bitterness from his own soul. There seems to be very little redeeming value in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it offers little hope. Ecclesiastes gives us a picture of a man who has achieved everything in life, but he did not have Christ. And that left him miserable, and it left him empty, and it left him hopeless. What a life without Christ shows us, and what the book of Ecclesiastes shows us, is that without Christ, you have a joyless life. And it's an ugly picture, to say the least. So today, we're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to study this man who left so helpless and so hopeless after, after doing all the things that he did. We need to heed the warning from the dead that a life without Christ is a life that has little hope, has little peace, and has little joy. And here's the big idea during this Christmas season. Consuming Christ is the only way to have joy. Consuming Christ is the only way to have joy. Now, before we dive into some of the book, we need to understand the context because this is going to be important for the end. So if, you need to, if you're going to understand the end, you need to understand this. There's a lot of debate on who actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. On the surface, it would appear that Solomon wrote it. However, when you dig into it, most likely Solomon was not actually the person who put pen to paper. The book was most likely written by someone else, uh, and Solomon is the case study. It's almost as if someone was looking at Solomon's life and said, we need to take an example from him of how not to live. And so King Solomon becomes the lost character inside the story. And Solomon, who had all this stuff and did all these things at the end of his life, is sitting there and he's just ranting and he's saying everything is absurd, everything is meaningless. So the author is sharing with us the wisdom from Solomon's life, and he's trying to get people to wake up and say, you can spend your entire life searching for joy, satisfaction, and peace, but if you do it through the human experience, you're going to be left empty and broken. You need God. Solomon tried to live to the extreme in five areas, trying to find fulfillment. He was experimenting with different central aspects of life, trying to find the fulfillment that he longed for. However, 37 times throughout this book, Solomon is saying everything is meaningless. Why is it important for us to understand this? Because when we're trying to look for satisfaction apart from Christ, we often look to these five things as well. However, every single one of these areas is going to leave us broken and void, and it's we too will say it was meaningless, it was meaningless, it was meaningless. So what are the areas that Solomon tried to find satisfaction and meaning? The first is this. He experimented with finding his meaning in being wise. Ecclesiastes 1.13 says this, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
Now, scripture tells us that Solomon is one of the wisest men who ever lived. God had given him a supernatural gift, and his wisdom surpassed any person who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, the scriptures say that Solomon wrote 3,000 songs and 1,005 proverbs. He was a poet and a scholar that was unmatched by anyone else. And yet, what we see in this verse is that Solomon has all this wisdom, and he says it's an unhappy business because at the end of the day, He could not figure everything out. There are things in life that we just cannot understand. We don't know why tragedies happen. We don't understand the function of the universe. And we don't have the ability to understand the beginning from the end. And what Solomon discovered was misery because even though he was super wise, he did not allow that wisdom to influence his relationship with God. He tried to use his wisdom to bring him to an understanding, hoping that he would find peace in that understanding. And yet... It failed him. How many of you people like to know the beginning from the end? That's me. How many of you like to know how the movie ends before you go and watch it? That's me. I think I've shared this with you before. Charity, it drives her insane because I will look up the spoilers before I go to a movie. I will read the description, the synopsis. I want to know the details of the entire movie because I want to know how the movie's going to end. Charity hates that because she's so mad at me. I'm like, why do you care if I know how it's going to end? I'm not telling you. What difference does it make to you? And she's like, well, it ruins the experience. And I said, what I don't want to is to experience a bad movie for two hours and then say it was meaningless. So I want to know before I go to the movie, is it going to be something I like or is it going to be dumb? Because I'm, you've been to the movies lately. It's like $5,700 to go to a movie because you walk in there, the tickets are $2. That's cheap. Then you walk in there and here's a box of popcorn that costs them 48 cents to make and they sell it to you for $45. And everybody's got to have their own because you can't reach all the way down here when you have like eight people with you. And so you got to buy all the different stuff and then you try to sneak stuff in your your purse and it's just bad things all the way around. So I'm not going to waste my time going to a movie if I don't know how it's going to end. And in some sense, that's how people treat God. Before they invest their life in honoring God, they want to know how it's going to end. They want to understand the mechanics And the problem is you don't understand and you never will on this side of heaven understand everything. When you look into society, there's countless people, maybe even people in this room or watching with us online who who are at a place of meaningless with God because they're trying to understand all of his ways and they cannot figure out how the universe works. There are countless people who refuse to honor Christ because they don't understand certain aspects of life. They will say things like, how could a horrible natural disaster happen if God is all-powerful? They'll ask questions like, how could a loving God send someone to hell? They wonder and contemplate the origins of the universe, and because they don't understand these complex things that none of us understand, they say, I'm out. There seems to be no biblical answer that satisfies their curiosity. It seems like no research is adequate enough to answer their questions. What happens is these people slowly give up on God because they cannot wrap their minds around who he is. This can happen for believers as well. There are a lot of people who are leaving the faith every single day because they cannot understand certain aspects of the character of God and their surroundings. And so what we see from this experiment to try to find joy and wisdom will never satisfy. 
And we need to understand this Christmas, during this Christmas time that we can try to look for all the answers in the universe and we might never get them. We aren't going to always understand God and how he does things. The things that we need to understand is that God wanted to be with us. We don't have to understand why tragedies happen. We don't have to understand how God created things and ordered them. What we need to understand is the most important thing, and that's what Christmas teaches us, that God wanted to be with you and with me, so he left heaven and he came to earth. Solomon missed that. Second, Solomon experienced to try to find meaning by indulging in pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2.1 said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Solomon goes on to test himself with pleasure and enjoy himself and everything. Basically, he's saying, you know what? If it makes me feel good, then I'm going to indulge in it to the fullest. Now, there are all of us have things in life that are simple pleasures, little things that bring us joy and pleasure. Mine is a, is a good cup of black coffee because men drink black coffee, right? Amen? That's a weak amen, okay? So, so you guys are like, well, my husband drinks coffee with sugar in it. Well, you know. Yeah, talk to him about that, okay? Listen, as I drink my tea, okay? So I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. I don't like this for the record. We have simple things that we all enjoy. We all have simple pleasures in life that are good. And pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. There's pleasure in enjoying nature and hobbies and activity in life. But pleasure becomes a poor substitute for peace and fulfillment. Pleasure is meant to be enjoyed. Pleasure is not meant to be God. And that's what Solomon figured out. Pleasure is a fleeting vanity. If I struggle with depression, having fun on the golf course isn't going to cure what caused depression in my heart. If I'm lonely, going on a shopping spree isn't going to fill the emptiness of my heart. If I'm bored with my purpose, going on a hunting trip isn't going to magically bring purpose to my life. So what happens is, is because pleasure is fun, we try to fix ourselves with the things that are fun, but it doesn't actually fix the problem and we become addicted to pleasure. Imagine you break your leg and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, ah, it'd be all right. It'll take care of itself. Here's some pain pills. You start taking the pain pills. What happens? The pain goes away. What also happens? Your leg isn't fixed because they didn't set the break. And so the, the, the wound is always there. And when you run out of pain pills, the pain comes back. So what happens? You go and you go get some more. And you take them, you feel better for a while. And then the pain comes back. Why? Because the problem is still there. It's never been fixed. That's exactly what a lot of people try to do with pleasure in their life. The problem isn't fixed. Yes, going doing things brings some fun in my life for a while, but as soon as the high is gone, I'm right back to where I started, and so I have to start over again. And the bondage starts to snowball on yourself, and one day you wake up where you realize that you're an alcoholic, or you realize that you have $30,000 in credit card debt, or you realize that you wasted your family time on all the hobbies, and you don't even know who your kids are anymore. Fun is fine. Fun is good. Fun is not God, and it cannot cure your heart. And this is a temptation that so many of us fall into, and Solomon fell into this as well. He learned the truth the hard way. It's all vanity. It's all vanity. Christmas is what cures the heart because Christ comes, and he fixes things that are broken. 
Third, Solomon experimented with finding meaning in his work. Probably all of us have had jobs that we did not like. Those are common. However, have you ever just looked around and thought about, boy, if I could do this and get paid for it, that's what I do every day. Like, just enjoy it. I was talking to Knox the other day about life, and he, he is a planner. It's, I've never seen a nine-year-old like it. He's, he thinks about going to college. He thinks about having to be a dad someday. I mean, just he's been this way since he was a little guy. And so I was talking to him about what kind of job he would want to be. And I said, you know what you should do? I was trying to bring some levity to this situation. I said, you should become an ice cream taster. And he's like, for real? People get paid to do that? I was like, yeah. This is this dude has a golden spoon going around tasting ice cream. I mean, it'd be great, right? I saw him on the news. This is a real thing. Look him up. And he's like, that would be awesome. I mean, if I came to you today and said, you can quit your job. All you have to do is walk around with a golden spoon and taste some ice cream every once in a while. I, I just assume that most people would take me up on that offer, right? Why? Because that would be awesome. You know, Solomon got to write his own job description. He got to do whatever he wanted, and it still left him empty. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 said this. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. God created humanity to be productive with his ability. We're created to be fruitful. I love what T.D. Jakes says that God did not make tables. He made trees. And we're to take the trees and to make the tables. And work is commended by God, is commanded by God. We are to work as unto the Lord. We are to be creative. We are to be productive. We are to enjoy our work and find delight in it. However, work can quickly become God when we turn to our work to be our source. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He did great works. He worked hard. He had all of these projects. He had all these achievements. And it became the source of his meaning. And a lot of people are driven by works if they just had the right career, or they just had another hour to be productive, everything would work out all right, and I would arrive. We would sacrifice everything in order to be successful, in order to find inner achievement. That's exactly what Solomon had done. It has been said many times that a man laying on his deathbed would never wish to go back and spend more time in the office or in the field. The problem with laboring and toiling is found very clearly in chapter 2, verse 18. He said this, I hated all of my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all of which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Wow. Solomon sets out and he says, look, I'm going to make all the stuff. I'm going to have the houses. I'm going to have the vineyards. I'm going to have the fields. In fact, I'm going to plant forests. I'm going to dig pools to water the forest. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then Solomon looked at it and he said, you know, the problem with everything I just accomplished is I got to give it to another guy. And he might be a fool. It's vanity. You know, we labor and toil for a lot just to leave to someone else. And so many people are sacrificing their family, their faith, and their potential on the altar of a career. And at the end of their life, it's going to someone else. So what's the balance of this? If God created us to be fruitful and productive, and yet Solomon calls toil vanity, what is the balance? The balance is who 
you are laboring and toiling for. When we labor as unto the Lord, we will work hard, we will give our best, but we will also follow a healthy rhythm of work and rest. The Bible commands work, but it also commands Sabbath. The Bible commands productivity, but it also commands rest. And so when you work for any other reason than the glory of God, you will ultimately always be working for your glory, and our glory never satisfies. We will sacrifice everything to clinch the glory of life. And yet, when we finally grasp it, we'll realize that it's vanity. For Solomon experimented with finding meaning in wealth. Ecclesiastes 2, 7 through 8 says this. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Pretty interesting that Solomon might have been the most wealthy man who ever lived. It's impossible to know a real figure, but there is a there are some scholars that have tried to kind of just take a stab at it a little bit, and they think his net worth might have been around two point two trillion dollars in today's money. He had all I mean, you name it, he had it. If you stacked hundred dollar bills on top of each other to hit two trillion dollars, that stack would be twelve hundred miles high. To put that in perspective for you, that's six times the distance between the ground and the space station. He had the money. Solomon had serious scratch, but most of us, you know, we've had that conversation. What would we do if we had a million dollars to spend it? And I always answer, I'd buy charity something, of course, but, you know, we fall into this trap where we just want the money. More money, more resources. We think that if we had more money, more resources, that life would be easier, that we'd be fulfilled in life. But as with everything else, Solomon tried this and he discovered that his vanity, that his wealth was vanity as well. See, he discovered some problems with wealth and he made it very clear in chapter five. He said, look, the more you have, the more you want. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We've all been there. We've all gotten a raise. And then the next thing you know, you spent it before you ever even started. He said, the more you have, the more others want to take from you. Ecclesiastes 5.11, when goods increase, they, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? He's like, the more you gather in, the more people come around wanting what you have. It's like the buddy who always calls to borrow a tool from you. And then he never returns it. If he does, it's broken. The more you have, the more you worry about losing it. Think about when you were 19 and you didn't have anything. You didn't worry about losing anything. You might be eating ramen noodles, but life was still had a little blissfulness to it. Ecclesiastes 5.12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You're always worried about what you're going to lose. The more you have, the more you're going to be tempted to be greedy. Ecclesiastes 5.13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their, own hand, by their owner to his hurt. Money and wealth is a resource that God brings into our life to provide for our needs and to bring an abundance and advance his eternal purpose. However, wealth becomes a God when, we, uh, when it leaves us empty and broken. It's an absurd to think that wealth is going to bring us happiness. And yet we think that a lot of times, and we champion that in our culture. The wealthiest people on the planet are the ones who understand Christmas, that Christ came 
And when they put their faith in him, they have all the inheritance of heaven waiting for them someday. Fifth and final, Solomon experimented in finding meaning in relationships. Ecclesiastes 2.8, he said, I gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of king and providences. The second half of that verse that we did not read says this. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the son of man. Solomon believed that he could find he could find pleasure and he could find abundance. And he could find peace and satisfaction in the abundance of sexual relationships. In fact, Scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, we can question how smart he really is by taking on that many wives. I mean, you know he forgot some anniversaries and birthdays along the way, and that dude took a beating. We need to know that the Lord had forbidden the, king from the kings from taking multiple wives. So Solomon was in sin, even though probably a lot of these marriages were for political reasons. It was still a sin. God created one man, one woman in the context of marriage. But more than that, we need to realize that an indulgence of, of sexual sin was going to leave his heart empty. Our culture is infatuated with finding the right relationships. And sometimes that desire is for sexual relationships, and sometimes it's simply saying, if I had the right man or right woman in my life, I would be happy. The problem with this mindset is that we are asking a finite, flawed human to do what only God can do, and when we ask those people to do that, we are left empty, and there's a void in our life as a result. This is not just about people looking for spouses. Sometimes husbands and wives are not happy in their marriages because they're looking for their spouse to complete them and to bring them happiness. And I hate to break it to you, but none of you married so well that your spouse is going to bring you complete fulfillment and happiness in life. You're like, well, thanks for insulting everybody in the room. That's not the intention of my heart. Hear me. Your spouse cannot be God to you. Why? Because we're all broken and we're all flawed. We are only righteous because of who Jesus is, not because of our ability. Does that mean that we shouldn't keep growing and trying to love our spouses better? Of course we should. But what we need to understand is that only God can be the source of our fulfillment. Solomon had 700 opportunities to try to find someone who could fulfill him, and none of them did it. So Solomon, in the search for these five areas... He's looking for meaning. He's looking for happiness. He's looking for satisfaction and peace. And what does he say? It's all vain. It's all absurd. It's all meaningless. It's almost as if he goes down into this pit of despair and depression. If you read through the rest of the book, he points out realities and they're depressing realities. He says things like this, bad things happen to wise and foolish. He says things like, we're all going to die anyways and just turn into dust. He says things like, evil is everywhere and only lucky ones among us are the ones who were unborn. You can't understand the works of God. Everything seems random. He is in this cycle where he has looked for satisfaction and he's just left at this place where he's just depressed, he's bitter, he's miserable, and he's going in circles round and round and round. And Solomon at the end of his life is not someone you want to invite over for a dinner party. Why? Because he's just going to sit in the corner and he's going to bring down the mood. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. Now, remember at the beginning of this passage or at the beginning of this message, I talked about how many scholars are debating who wrote the book. And the consensus is that most likely a narrator 
wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a lot of bigwigs, people who just love studying the Bible. Did Solomon write the book or did the narrator write the book? Why is this important? Because the answer of that question would indicate if Solomon got right with God or if he died in despair. The last passage I want to read to you is this, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon tried to do all these different things to bring him satisfaction. Now, one of the last lines of the book says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Like we've heard the case, we've heard it all. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of the whole man. You see, if Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, then what this verse would indicate is that he realized he needed God. If Solomon did not write the book of Ecclesiastes, then the narrator is saying this, Solomon tried to find peace everywhere, and he looked in all the wrong places. So who wrote the book, Solomon or a narrator? The truth is, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell you. There's a lot of debate, but here's the important thing. The principle is not important who wrote the book. The principle itself is important. Solomon spent a lifetime looking for peace in all the wrong areas. Solomon experimented with all these things to bring him happiness, and he never found it. What Solomon desperately needed was he needed Christmas. He needed a relationship with God. It's insane. You read through this book, and he talks about all the things he indulged in. And you never see him saying, you know what? And then I turned and I went to the temple and I just cried out to God. You never look at him and hear in the book where he says, you know what? God, I've tried all these things. I've just given you an opportunity. You see, when Jesus' birth was foretold to Mary in the Christmas story, the angel told her that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The reason why Solomon found nothing but vanity in the world was that he was trying to live life without this relationship with God. He needed God with him. Instead, he was doing everything to run away from God. The Christmas story is about Christ leaving heaven to come search for you and for me. He left heaven, came to earth, lived the righteous life, and died the death you and I owed. Why? So that we could be with God. What Solomon needed was Christmas. He needed Christ with him. And what we need is Christmas. Isaiah prophesied of Christmas in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. What Solomon needed was a relationship with God. He needed a wonderful counselor. In those moments when life comes crashing down around us, we need the Christmas experience because we need Christ with us. We need a wonderful counselor. We need a mighty God 
if this season has taught us anything, all these vanities in life will leave us empty. We need a mighty God who can sustain us and uphold us. Solomon would have discovered that he had and needed an everlasting father, the source of love and joy and peace and all the things that he was searching for. Solomon needed a prince of peace in his life. Notice what that verse says. I read it very slowly because I wanted it to have some emphasis. It says that the increase of his peace will be no end. And here's what you need to know. You can search all over. You can try all the experiments Solomon did, but it'll leave you empty. But when you come to Christ, the peace that surpasses all understanding will have no limit in your life. It will never be constrained. It will never be contained. It is without end.